so we start with a uh, mechanical ventilation mechanical ventilation provides breathing support until lung functions are restored um, they deliver warm air that is 100% humidified at the best saturation level between 21% to 100% of saturated air. That's what mechanical ventilation will provide for the client. And in most cases, our lungs are not able to provide adequate saturation, adequate perfusion to our bodily cells. That's why we need an assistant. And that assistant becomes the mechanical ventilation. Um, in the mechanical ventilation, we have what we call the positive pressure ventilators. These ventilators deliver air to the lungs to keep the alveolar open during inspiration and to prevent alveolar collapse during the period of expiration. Because when we have lungs condition that will make us not to be able to exchange gases our lungs might collapse so we need these mechanical ventilators to help us to prevent to, to prevent lungs lungs collapse when our lungs cannot work by themselves the benefits of mechanical ventilation include it helps to force lungs expansion that's one of the benefits of mechanical ventilation it also helps to improve gas exchange, which is oxygenation. Without mechanical ventilation and without our lungs being uh, working properly, we are not able to carry on gas exchange adequately, which would hamper our saturation. Um, there is a decreased work of breathing. When we have this problem, we use MV. It decreases the workload when it comes to breathing. These are things that uh, MV can do for us when it comes to mechanical ventilation. Um, this can be delivered through the endotracheal tube or it can be delivered to the tracheal stomach tube. So there are two ways we deliver mechanical ventilation to the lungs. Either through one, the endotracheal tube um, or it is administered through the tracheal stomach, tracheal stomach tube, or the tracheal stomach, a stomach that is created in the trachea. That's how we deliver mechanical ventilation. These ventilators can be cycled based on pressure, the volume, the time at which it delivers the oxygen to the client's lungs, and the rate at which these O2 will flow into the lungs. Those are just, um, the way in which they are provided. Now, um, whenever we have lungs problem where we cannot exchange gases adequately through the natural means, meaning we've tried all other means, and those means that we are trying, or they have failed us, then we turn to mechanical ventilation. Um, this can help to maintain a patent airway and adequate O2 exchange or O2 saturation in our body. That's just the indication for mechanical ventilation.
um, when a patient has hypoxemia, patient has chronic COPD, the patient has chronic or huge asthmatic attack, patient has some other neurological disorder like multiple sclerosis, like the uh, like the like the myasthenia gravis, like the Golian bar syndrome condition. These are lungs conditions that affect the client gastro exchange that will impair gastro exchange. So in that case, the, this condition can call for the the, 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 the the procedure to put in mechanical ventilation. So myasthenia gravis, you wanna, you wanna know what myasthenia gravis is? You wanna look it up, um, multiple sclerosis. Um, you have myasthenia gravis you have multiple sclerosis multiple sclerosis you have condition like uh, the golian the golian bar syndrome the golian bar syndrome um these conditions might require the client to have mv insider um, when a client has sometimes there is some acute pulmonary edema that might be due to myocardial infarction. In, in, in those conditions, the client will require to have in some mechanical ventilation to come in and help. Uh, when a client has respiratory support, when, when a client needs uh, respiratory support while the client is on general last anesthetic or anesthesia, we might also need uh, mechanical ventilation to come in and help the client to exchange gases along the way. Now, um, my concern under here is going to be the nursing management, the kind of mechanical ventilation that we're going to use, what are the do's and don'ts about them. Those are my concerns under here. Um, the first thing is every procedure the client needs to uh, undertake, the first is we have to understand whether it, is a, a, whether it is an invasive or it is a non-invasive procedure. If it is invasive or non-invasive, the first thing is the nurse needs to explain to the client what the procedure is about, how is it going to be done and other things. The second thing is if it is invasive procedure, the nurse needs to go on and why and provide the client with uh, provide the client with informed consent explain to, to, the, to the client. Now, the data going to come in and play that part for the client to understand the informed consent. The nurse is going to come in to serve as a witness to the informed consent signing and make sure the client understands what was explained to the client by the doctor or by the person who's providing this particular procedure for the client. Those are the nursing responsibility when it comes to informed consent. Now, after that, we want to establish methods of communication before the procedure because during the procedure, after the procedure, the client cannot start talking right away. So the client and there are some, there are other kinds of the procedure that, that the client will not talk. So in, in these conditions, we must create a medium in which we can exchange communication when the client has the procedure done. We want to maintain patent uh, airway when the procedure is being carried out, we want to assess the position of the of the client of and the tube, the tube placement within the trachea. We want to assess those area. 
we want to document the placement where it is placed. We want to have a good descriptive writing, descriptive analysis about how the procedure is done, where the tube is placed, how many inches inside, how many inches outside. These are things we want to describe in our nurse's note or the progress note following the procedure. We want to use two staff members to reposition the client uh, during the period of the procedure to resecure the tube. You never do it alone. The client will need two assistants or two persons who are going to come in to help to reposition the client when the client when the procedure is being carried out for the securing of the tubings. We want to apply protective barrier, soft risk restraint, very soft risk restraint according to the hospital protocol to prevent self-extubation. We want to use caution when we are moving the client from one place to another place. We want to make sure that a uh, um, suction orally, tracheal secretion in the client airway to maintain the airway patency. Because when we have the tube inserted, what becomes also a problem is the secretion that will, that will be, that will lodge along the pathway, along the trachea. Those secretions need to be suctioned. And that is one of the most difficult things for all to suction the client when the client has a trach or an MV on them. We want to make sure we want to have um, equipment that can rescue the client just in case there is an accidental removal which we call decanalization i will look at that in detail just let's just move on I'll look, I'll look at it in detail um you want to have a bag like an ambu bag by the client bedside the client needs to have one ambu bag by the bedside the client to have a uh, face mask at the bedside at all time just in case there is an accidental uh removal of the tubing Within the trick, in such condition, we use those uh, those bags, or we use the regular uh, the ambu bag to rescue the client, to get the client air that will be able to exchange and stabilize them until we can replace the tube in, depending on condition and some circumstances, which we'll look at in few moments of of for now. The nurse want to make sure that the client is monitored documented uh the setting of the airway how many air the client the client is, is being pumped into the client lungs um what the client using a CPAP, a bypass those are things you want to understand look up for CPAP and bypass do you between CPAP and bypass they are in one of our recordings but if look at the difference between CPAP and bypass it is important for the anklets now we want to make sure um, the client has the alarm setting. If something goes wrong, the the, 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 the the machine will alarm. Make sure the alarm is on and is appropriately set because if the alarm is not on, if something is going wrong, it's not going to alarm. Um, you want to make sure we never, like I said, we never turn off the alarm on the machine. We never turn those alarms out of if we do it's going to cause a serious problem you want to make sure um 
there are three kinds of vendor alarms. There are three kinds of alarm. Let's I'm going to take time to explain that because it's important for the anchor to, to know these alarms for the anchor. There are three kinds of alarm on a mechanical ventilator. There are three kinds of alarm. Let's look at them one at a time. The first alarm is the volume alarm. So the volume alarm is what we call the low pressure alarm. The volume alarm is what we call the low pressure alarm. Low pressure. When you have volume alarm, it means that's the low pressure alarm. Now, this low pressure alarm, it indicates a low exhale volume. When the client has a low exhale volume, um, due to disconnection, due to cough leak, due to tube displacement, this alarm will come on. That's why the anchor will ask you, a client is on a mechanical ventilation and there is a low pressure volume alarming. What is indicative of the alarm? Then they will give you the various scenario and ask you which one is correct. So the first alarm is what we call the low pressure alarm or the volume alarm. Whenever this alarm occurs, meaning the client is exhaling low pressure. And there are three reasons why the client will exhale low pressure when the client has the NV on. One of the three reasons is there is um, a disconnection. There is a cough leak or there is a tube displacement. Those three things, one of them or two of them might cause the client to have a, vo uh, to have a low pressure alarm beeping or alarming by the machine. That's one. Then we have the second one become the pressure alarm. This pressure alarm is referred to as the high pressure or the high pressure or the high alarm. So the first one is the volume alarm or the low pressure alarm. Second one is the high pressure alarm or the pressure alarms. Now, whenever this alarms, whenever we hear this particular pressure alarm, what's happening? This indicates there is excess secretion. It indicates there is excess secretion in the client airway. Whenever the client is lying and there is uh, saliva, uh, saliva accumulated in the client airway, you will hear the pressure alarm or the high alarm. Now, when there is the when the client is biting the tubing, meaning the client teeth is on the tubing and pressing the tubing together, you will hear the high pressure alarm alarming on the ventilator. When there are kings in the tubing, there are kings in the tubing, K-I-N-K-S, you will hear the high pressure alarming. When the client is coughing, when there is coughing occurring, the client cough reflex is being activated, you will hear the high pressure alarm. So we have coughing, we have biting the tubing, we have excess secretion of the, in the tubing, we have um, tanks in the tubing, we have pulmonary edema, and we have bronchospasm. I'm sorry, we have bronchospasm and we have pneumothorax. 
So when there's a pneumothorax in there, there will be ex, uh, there will be high pressure alarm occurring. I want us to read these things down. Read uh, the kind of alarm and read those what can cause them to alarm. Read them next to it and look at them. Read them to understand what is occurring when there is a low pressure alarm or a volume alarm or when there's a high pressure alarm. What's happening? Now, the last portion is the apnea alarm. The third one becomes the apnea alarm. The apnea alarm. This apnea alarm, um, it indicates that the machine does not detect spontaneous respiration. It indicates that the machine does not detect spontaneous breathing, meaning the client is not breathing. That's why you will hear the apnea alarm, pam, 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 pam. When that alarm is going off, meaning the machine, which is the ventilator, the ventilator has discovered that the client is not breathing. So with that, there will be the apnea alarm going off on the on the client. So um, you need to go there and look at them. Now, so there are three alarm systems when it comes to the ventilator. Know this alarm system, know their indication very well. We want to also maintain adequate volume in the cough of the in the trigger tube. There are some cough that have cough, there are some tubes that have cough, cough that we need to put fluid in that cough. And during the period of the client being on the cough, if the amount of fluid needed for that cough is not in there, the client will the alarm will keep going off. So we need to put the fluid until we increase it at the level prescribed by the doctor or the level at which it will create easiness or it will create ease for the client, then the alarm will stop going off. These are very important things for our ends for the ankles. You have to know these things for the ankles for our end. Now, um, you want to assess the cough pressure at every at least every eight hours. You want to assess the cough pressure every eight hours. You want to maintain. You want to maintain. Um, you want to maintain the cough pressure below twenty millimeter per mercury. Always uh, keep the cough pressure below twenty millimeter per mercury. You want to always keep it below there. Some of the phone is keep keep coming on, and it is not okay for us. Please, please put your phone on mute, please. Now, the cough pressure should not go above 20, it should not go below 20. The normal cough pressure is between 20 to 30 millimeter per mercury. This is the normal cough pressure. It should not go above, it should not drop below. So you want to monitor that every eight hours to make sure it is within that range. You want to make sure um, if it is reduced, now, if, if it drop below 20, it's going to create necrosis. There will be necrosis occurring, tissues death in the trachea area. That's why we want to maintain the cough pressure at the normal level. We want to also make sure we assess for air leak around the cough area. Now, um, 
Client speaking, there will be air hissing or degrading SAO2 when there's an air leak around the cup area. You want to make sure um, when there is inadequate cough pressure, this can result to inadequate O2 flow into the body. So you want to make sure always there is an adequate cough pressure. There is an adequate um, pressure which will prevent low O2 flow into the system. Whenever the pressure drops below 20, there will be adequate cough pressure. It can cause necrosis. It can also cause low O2 delivery into our system, which can cause hypoxemia or low saturation. We get the client um, when there is an when, when, there, when there is an accidental extubation, the tube moves accidentally. Um, this can also cause the alarm to go off. You want to make sure everything that is prescribed for this client with this condition who has the MVR is given to the client accordingly. Everything should be given to the client accordingly. You do not use your own description when it comes to this machine. They are calibrated. They have uh, numbers on them that the therapist will come in and set it at a particular way. And there should be adequate education on this machine before a nurse can work on them because any mistake of the airway, that's it. It's a huge problem. So we do not want to guess on the airway machine. What's better for this trick for, for this mechanical ventilators? Um, like I said, at the client bedside, we want to have manual, re, re, manual resuscitation bed with a face mask and an O2 ready at all time at the client bedside. So we'll look at why these things are important and uh, why we need to have them at the bedside. Now, what also is important under here, um, so let's start with acute respiratory disorders. These are nursing care for, of clients who have respiratory disorders. Um, the airway structures permit air to enter and provide adequate O2 saturation to our tissues that can create good tissue perfusion. That is the exact um, that is the exact reason why we are having this particular um, airway exchanges. There are common acute and chronic disorders that affect the airway structures. There are acute ones and there are chronic ones. So I'm going to start with the acute disorders under here. Then as we go ahead, we'll look at the chronic ones as we go ahead. The acute ones, we'll talk about rhinitis. We'll talk about sinusitis. We'll spend a little time on influenza. And we'll talk about pneumonia for the acute ones. So let's start with pneumonia. Um, when you hear the word pneumonia, what comes to our mind? Pneumonia as a condition, as a disease, as a disorder, it is an 
it is a lungs condition that involves the lungs being inflamed. The lungs get inflamed, and those areas of the lung that will get inflamed, they will accumulate fluid. There will be fluid fill in those accumulation that will cause the client to have this condition called pneumonia. So in pneumonia, there is an inflammation, there is excess fluid found in the lungs. That's about pneumonia. Now, in pneumonia condition, it can be triggered by other organism or other disease condition that might make us to have pneumonia, or that might make us to have pneumonia. Like you have irritant. It could be infectious agent like bacteria or viruses, like, like the coronavirus. That's what it does. It creates uh, excess fluid in the lungs. It creates um, the lungs to get inflamed. That's why people take uh, some of those anti-inflammatory those anti anti drugs when you're having COVID because the COVID virus can make us to have lungs inflammation. Then there will be excess fluid accumulating in our lungs with the inflammation. Now, it could be due to other foreign objects. That's why you've heard about aspiration pneumonia. You were feeding a child and the fluid went to the child's lungs. The child could have aspiration pneumonia. We have bacteria pneumonia. We have virus pneumonia. We have different kinds of pneumonia depending on the causative agent. What is important here is it affects people of all ages. Um, young clients, older clients, and clients who have immunocompromised system um, are more susceptible to the condition. Um, there are two kinds of pneumonia according to my research. One is what we call the community acquired pneumonia, CAP. The first one is what we call the community acquired pneumonia, the CAP. Now, your book might give you a little bit different version, but all will make the same sense when we read at the end of the day. Um, this is the most common type, and it's often it often occur as complication of influenza. So when you have common cold, flu, after the common cold, if the common cold is not treated well, the complication we might have pneumonia. It, 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 it can be the community acquired pneumonia. Um, then we have the healthcare pneumonia, the health, the healthcare associated pneumonia. In this type of pneumonia, um, it has a higher rate of death, which is called mortality rate. So this one has a higher death rate, and uh, it's more likely to be resistant to antibiotics. So it cannot respond to antibiotics, the one that is healthcare acquired. Many at times you give all those antibiotics, it does not respond to antibiotic therapy. Um, it takes 24 to 48 hours from the time the client is exposed to the to the to the to the healthcare acquired pneumonia to the time the client was able to show symptoms. It takes 24 to 48 hours for this to occur. So let's understand those things. Now, there are other risk factors under here. I'm not concerned about that. I'm not going to talk about them. They are not really important to, to, to look at. Then, I guess we you understand there are two pneumonia and how the two of them can affect our lives. Just understand that. That's, that's my major concern under here. 
Then we have, we look at Renitis. On a rhinitis, um, there is an inflammation of the nasal mucosa. And often the mucosa in the sinus area can get infected by other bacteria or viruses that will cause the inflammation of those areas. That's why we call rhinitis. In rhinitis, um, the common core is the cause of the condition of the virus for the virus to spread from one part of the patient to another part through droplets and sneezing. That's how the, the, this particular rhinitis can be spread. Um, this disorder can coexist with other conditions. Like when you have asthma condition, it coexists with rhinitis. When you have, like uh, in the case of uh, uh, allergic reaction during springs or during season, uh, seasonal changes, the client might be having rhinitis with other conditions. Um, it is very common um, when a client has like a histamine problem, they can also have this, uh, this particular rhinitis coming on as a co-mobility. Uh, co um, when there is rhinitis, the client will have excessive nasal drainage. You see, you, you see them having running nose. They're going to have which which we call renorrhea, and they'll have nasal congestion. There will be nasal congestion when the client has rhinitis. There will be prudent nasal discharge. Running nose will come frequently. The client will have itchy and watery eye. The eye will be very itchy, and the more they scratch the eye, the more the the the, the worse the eye is going to become. Um, they're going to have sore throats and dry throats. They're going to have red, inflamed, swollen nasal mucosa. They're going to have low-grade fever. And they will have diagnostic testing can be included. They will do other possible tests for allergies and other things along the way. Those are things we'll find in the physical finding for rhinitis. What is important for the nursing care is, you want to encourage the client to rest. 8 to 10 hours a day because it makes you feel very tired. Um, the clients should increase their fluid intake at least above 2,000 two, uh, two ml or 2 liters per day. Encourage the client to use the home humidifier or the client can use breathing aid, breathing steamy air. Like the client can open the hot water faucet and the steam from the hot water further can go into the client nostril it can create comfort for the client this is good for the ankles so the client who has rhinitis the client will have renorrhea the client will have sinusitis you can open the hot water faucet as it drains there will be a steam from that hot water the client can inhale it it can help to suit or clear the nasal passage for the client which can bring in comfort to the client um the client can also use um all the disposable tissues they can use tissue and other people like a handkerchief and dispose of it after they use because they might be also transferring the condition the client should cough in the elbow not in the hand or client should cough or sneeze on the shoulder not in the hands for the medication under here we use almost the same drugs we use for asthma condition we're going to use the antihistamines. 
we use the leukotriene inhibitors, we use the mass cell stabilizers, we use the nasal decongestant, we use the intranasal glucocorticoid spray, we use the antiparody and we use the antibiotics for this condition if it is bacteria related. These are a course of drugs we use when a client needs to take medication for rhinitis. And if you look on our pharmacology, when we did medications for the respiratory system, we talk about these drugs one at a time. When we did asthma, we talk about leukotriene modifier. We say what they do, how do they work on the client. We talk about mast cell stabilizer. We talk about the anti the the antihistamines. We talk about the decongestant, the nasal spray. All those things we talk about, they are in our pharmacology area under this medication. So you can reference them and you, can listen to them and you have articles on, on, this, on these drugs, how they can work. Then we have sinusitis. In the case of sinusitis, then we have sinusitis. In sinusitis, um, it's often called renal sinusitis. It is an inflammation of the mucous membrane or one of the client sinuses. So there are, I think there are five around our face here, five. So when one gets inflamed and infected, it's what we call sinusitis. Uh, what is important under here? It often comes after the client has had rhinitis or rhinorrhea. That's when the client going to have sinusitis. When the client has it, the client can have nasal congestion. The client will have a headache. They will have facial itching. They will usually rub their nose, itching their nose, scratching around their nose for the whole while. They usually making those sounds from their mouth when they have sinusitis. Um, they're going to have cough. Sometimes they can have blooded nasal discharges and they can have low grade fever. These are all expected findings when a client has the condition sinusitis. The client might do a CT scan to review the sinuses around the client's face or the client might do a head or cranial x-ray to locate and determine how patent these airways are. Um, the client can also do irrigation. The client can do sinus irrigation. They irrigate the sinuses and make sure they clean it. I have seen that in Liberia. I used to work, used to work at, a, at a clinic where the guy was an ENT doctor. His name was Dr. Dopo. Um, he had this ENT clinic around Ominga in uh, in Liberia. So I used to go there when I graduated New York. I was... Yeah, so I used to go there. I used to work there when I graduated New York. That was my first job I got in uh, around, uh, around Ominga. So we used to go there, he, he started to like irrigate the sun. He would irrigate, he had he had all those equipment, he would go into the nose and pick everything you see, and the client will feel so good. So that's about the sinuses. Um the medications are almost the same when the client has nasal congestion. We will give the client nasal decongestants. Um, these are used to reduce the swelling around the sinus area. The client would take broad-spectrum antibiotics. 
we get the client and uh amoxicillin, amoxicillin is a brush become an antibiotics um it can be used to limit the bacteria or pathogens that are bacteria related in the client sinus that is causing the inflammation and the itching um the client will take acetaminophen or they can take NSAID medication to relieve the pains that is that come with the sinusitis like aspirin they can take aspirin these are things that the client would take in this condition. Now, then we look at influenza, common cold. Influenza. Now, in influenza condition, we call it common cold. We call it flu. It is an epidemic. So you want to look at what is epidemic. What is pandemic? Look at what is uh, uh, epidemic, pandemic. Look at these words and know what they are. Um, you want to make sure for the common cold, we have two types, or the, there are two types of influenza. We have the seasonal influenza and we have the pandemic influenza. Um, the seasonal one, it comes in fall and winter month. That's when the seasonal one comes. It comes in fall and winter one. Then uh, it can be caused by virus with different families. And uh, it can be contagious among the other population. There will be 24-hour symptoms that will come before it can begin. That is the seasonal uh the seasonal influenza or the seasonal common cold. Now, for the pandemic type, it is a viral infection among animals and birds that has mutated and is now affecting the human race around the group. Example is the H1N1. So the H1N1, like the swine flu, is also a pandemic. That is that fall under the influence. So there are two types. You have the seasonal type that is very common, and you have like the H1N1 that came and killed seven thousand of in the U.S. I think during the period of Obama time. Uh, during Obama time, this uh, this this happened. Or like the avian flu. For the avian flu is the H5N1. The swan flu is the H1N1. So these are conditions that fall under the influenza that affects a lot of people. Now, um, the findings, there will be severe headache occurring. There is going to be uh, chills. The client will be fatigued. There will be weakness. There will be severe diarrhea. There will be cough. And there will be fever. And there will be uh, hypoxia. will occur with all these symptoms the client presenting with. Um, we can do the H5N1 flu test. To know whether it is H1N1 or the one is H5N1 influenza because there are different types. You want to maintain a droplet precaution because it is a droplet condition. So you want to maintain a droplet precaution. You want to also provide saline goggles for the client. So you want to provide a client with saline goggles. Saline goggles for the client who has this particular condition.
you want to administer fluid therapy as much as prescribed as possible, monitor the client respiratory system and take prompt action if it occurs. Um, you want to make sure the client take antiviral medication if it is antiviral condition. If it is viral condition, the client can take uh, the other client who have who have been exposed, who have not had who are that kind of the condition. Other client who is in the same area, one is pandemic. Those clients can be vaccinated against the flu vaccines. Um, what is important on here also is the client education. You want to encourage the client to take the annual flu shot. There are myths that pass that's not really right about flu vaccine or about vaccine as a whole. You and I do not want to be within or among the people. Who will say the worst about these vaccines like the COVID vaccines many people have different theories and those theories are not good theories. those theories are not real theories you need to go out take the COVID vaccine it's going to prevent you from so many different uh, from the COVID infection it's very important to take vaccine serious and we should not undermine what we believe in um the vaccine is given yearly um, depending on the strain that will appear in the area, it can be given IM um, or they can give it through intranasal spray. The H1N1 vaccine is available for general population. The H5N1 vaccine is stockpiled for distribution if there's, an, if there's a pandemic. So it's only given during pandemic. The H5N1 is only when it's a pandemic that's when it's a minister um i think that's it for this particular sister this particular flu vaccine what you want to understand is um there are complications also like pneumonia like i said it might come after the uh, pneumonia might come after the flu which is a complication for pneumonia the client can take antibiotics if the client has uh, if, if, if the client has bacterial infection along with the viral infection, the client can take bacteria, uh, the client can take antibiotics and the client can take antiviral medication to help the client to subside the symptoms. Um, so those are important things. Any question on what we've been explaining? Any question? So asthma. So asthma will fall under the chronic disorders of the airway. So asthma is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the airway that result in intermittent and reversible airflow obstruction. In asthma, there is an airflow obstruction that will put stress on the client. It occurs at any age and the cause of asthma is idiopathic. It is unknown, simply Put it, it is unknown. There are symptoms of, of asthma um, which include mucosa edema. There will be edema of the mucosa area. There will be bronchoconstriction, narrowing of the airway. There will be excessive mucus production which will cause the airway to get congested. So in asthma, the client is going to have edema. That's one is happening. The, there will be inflamed airway. Number two, the client is going to have bronchoconstriction. 
the bronchi tree, the bronchi will become narrow and the client will have excessive mucus production. So in asthmatic condition, there are three things happening. I want to remember this thing because that's how we provide medication combined when the client has asthmatic problem. Um, we assess the client. Our diagnosis for, for asthma is based on the symptoms and how we classify these symptoms into four categories. There are four categories of symptoms that can help us to classify asthma. We have the mild intermittent symptoms or they are mild intermittent. So when they are mild intermittent, when they are mad, intermittent, what's happening in here? Under the mad intermittent, the symptoms arise more than twice a week, but not daily. So if it is mild, the symptom will appear more than twice. So the symptom, the signs and symptom is more than twice hmm? a week, more than twice a week. But it's not every day. So the client might have asthma exacerbation twice in one week, but it is not every day. That means that simply means the condition is the symptoms are mild symptoms. Then we have the mild persistent. We have the mild persistent. The mild persistent. Under the mild persistent, what's happening under here? Under here, the, 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 there are data symptoms that occurs in conjunction with the symptom occurring twice a week, like the first one. That's what happening in the case of the mild persistent symptoms. Then we have moderate persistent symptoms. In the moderate persistent symptoms, there are. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm gonna let, let me go back. So, in the first one is the intermittent, the symptom occurring more than twice a week, but not every day. In the mild persistent symptoms, the symptoms. I'm sorry, let me let me just let me just uh put it down. I think I think I'm kind of I'm kind of confused something here so in the mild symptoms the symptom occurs less than it occur less than two times a week. it occur less than two times per week it is not every day it occur less than two times a week in the mild in the mild intermittent symptoms in the mild persistent the symptoms occur more than two times a week in the mild persistent, mild persistent, the symptom occur more than two times per week. It is mild persistent occur more than two times a week. Then when it is moderate persistent, if it is moderate persistent, moderate persistent, the symptoms of asthma. Um, they, they occur daily with other symptoms that occur twice a week, meaning it occurs daily. So in this case, it occurs every day when it is moderate. 
when it is severe persistent when it is severe persistent guess what happened in there meaning the symptom occur continuously along with the frequency of exacerbation that will limit the client physical activities so that means it is severe so there are four types there are four different categories in which we categorize the symptoms of, 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 of this condition according to the patient needs. Um, in asthmatic condition, we have expected findings when it comes to asthma. Those expected findings with asthma include the client will have dyspnea, chest tightness, and anxiety of stress. Those are the three physical symptoms that the client will present with when the client has asthma. Those are the three physical symptoms the client will present with when the client has asthma. Then uh, the client will have coughing, they will have dizziness, they will have mucus production, they're going to have poor O2 saturation, they're going to have poor they're going to have barrier chest wall or increased chest diameter when they are having physical when they are having some physical symptoms occurring. Um, what is important here is we want to obtain history regarding the current and previous asthma exacerbation, the onset and duration of the asthma. We want to provide what has triggered the asthma. Was it stress? Was it pollens from the community? Was it allergens? Was it spray or perfume? Was it dust in the client environment that has triggered the asthma attack? These are things we want to be able to give to compile together and provide a note for the client. We want to make sure that the client who having this condition, um, the client will maintain his or her medication on time and uh, if the drug is not relieving the client's symptoms, maybe the client had different reaction to the medication, the, the nurse should tell the client doctor immediately so that the doctor can take appropriate action. That is important on there. Um, in the end class, we have what we call status, status asthmaticus. Is wherein we are providing other medication and they cannot work, and the client will have his hand over his nose to catch his breath. That is what we call status asthmaticus, meaning air is not going to the brain, and uh, the brain is being deprived from O2. For that reason, the client cannot have adequate perfusion or adequate saturation. The client will have to keep the hands here over the nose to see how best he can grab some air and put it into his lungs. So at that point in time, there is a continual airway deprivation and treat all things that are happening to the airway. There will be constriction, there will be edema, there will be congestion. Everything will be happening at the same time. The client cannot breathe. The drugs we are administering they will start to fill the client. That is very dangerous. It is a medical emergency. Status asthmaticus is a medical emergency. They call it status. Asthmaticus. Asthmaticus. It is a medical emergency that needs prompt medical intervention.
strong and robust medical intervention. Um, on here, if the client is on ventilation, the client needs to be positioned in semi-follow position to accommodate the medication to pass. We administer O2 therapy as prescribed. We initiate IV access. We make sure the client take the medication as prescribed. So on our asthma, we have these, we have four different agents on our bronchodilator or bronchodilator inhaler. Now, on our here, we have four drugs that fall on our bronchodilators inhaler. They are inhaler, but they are bronchodilators. So they are bronchodilators, but they come in as inhalers. These drugs include one, you have um, the short acting beta agonist, short acting beta agonist, SABS, SABA. We discussed these things in pharmacology. I'm just, I'm just rehearsing them because it's in our pharmacology audio. We went in depth. Now we have the SABA, they are called the short acting beta agonist. Example for the SABA, you have. Um, example is abuterol. Abuterol is an example of short acting beta agonist medication. When I had the COVID recently, I had to get one because I could not breathe, and it was so serious that I couldn't even catch my own breath. And I'm lying down trying to talk, I can't talk, and I can't breathe. And I had to call. The doctor to help me to order the abuterol or uh, pump, and that helped me because it arrests the situation on the sea. It is short acting, it is fast acting, it is rapid acting. So we call them the SAB, it is SABA, the short acting beta agonist. For the ankle, we have to know these things. If the ankle is if our ankle is not far away, and we cannot remember these things. Meaning we have to re-examine ourselves. These things are not Greek. They are English. They are message. They are in our books. They are in the standard book. We have had this book for more than two, three years. Sometimes we have even longer years. But these things can sound strange to our ear. Or they might sound familiar. But we do not have complete control over it. And for these ones, hey, for the English, you want to have control over this medication. These airway drugs for asthma, you want to have control. So if you don't have control, you want to, you want to look at them. Go back to our message audio, because in the in the pharmacology audio we went in depth compared to the message. In the message we are combining them. In pharmacology we deal with them one at a time, and that's why I took my time. I I we did the farm before coming to message, because in the farm audio we went in depth. We gave you several examples of the short-acting beta agonist medication. We give you three to four, and we tell you how they work, how they carry on their action. That is their uh, their kinetics. How do they carry on? We told you about that under the pharmacology. So you're gonna listen to that pharmacology audio and make use of it. Um, this beta medication, uh, like the abiturol, they are rapid 
they are drugs that relieve rapid relief of acute symptoms and prevent exercise induced asthma. One thing we we'll talk about this medication, the SABA, they prevent these drugs prevent exercise induced asthmatic attack. That's one function for the short-acting beta agonist medication. Then we have the anti medication. Anti, we have the anti-cholinergic medication, the cholinergic medication, the anti-cholinergic medication. This agent, um, this agent, they are very important. These drugs allow us they, they control the sympathetic nervous system, which can help to increase bronchodilation. Because we say in asthmatic condition, there will be bronchoconstriction. So when you take this anticholinergic agent, they help to what dilate our bronchi. These drugs, example, are many. We have one we call the apratropium. The apat the Ipratropium or apatropium, it is an example of the anti-cholinergic agent. There are so many of them. Then we talk about, um, we said this medication, they are long-acting drugs. So they are long-acting. They do not arrest acute situation, but they can be given to prevent a long-term effect of asthmatic attack. Then we said we have the metal xanthines. After the saba, the anticholinergic agent, we have the next one we have here is the metal xanthines. The next group of drugs under this under asthma, we have the metal the metal xanthines. The metazantines, um, you have the theophylline, you have the aminophylline, the four under the metazantines. Before then, these were the drugs of choice for asthma condition back home. When I was in nursing school, um, these were the drugs that we used as drugs of choice in Liberia, in other parts of Africa. But now they have been regarded as older drugs. They can still work, but they have newer ones and more effective ones with lesser side effects compared to these older metals and things. This medication, they are they have huge burden. When you administer them, you have to monitor them. Matter of fact, you don't administer these drugs IV directly. They, they have to be diluted before, before you can administer them. If you are getting it to IV direct. You gotta give one after every five minutes. You gotta you, you, you got push like one ml after every five minutes. That's how it is administered. So these drugs would need close monitoring, and we have like a they have serum levels, and we have to know the blood serum level for this medication. It is important we understand those serum level in our book, in our Sunda's book. We have different serum level. Um, 
we have different serial numbers. We have theophylline, we have aminophylline, we have different drugs in their serum level. We have to know them to our fingertip. They are important we know the, finger, the, the, the therapeutic level, level at which it becomes toxic. We have to know those drugs that have those levels. What are the most frequent ones? Dalantin, vaporic acid, carbamazepines. Those are drugs we see frequently. Valium, digoxin, theophylline. We must know that therapeutic level at all point in time. Um, then we have the fourth medication. So, okay, so these metazantines, they are only used, listen to the English, they are only used when other medications have failed. So they are very effective, but they come with so much burden when it comes to monitoring them, or you got to monitor them to the first step on the, the client can be done taking them. So because of the burden, so we don't administer it very frequently, we keep them. When others have failed us, then we give this, no matter how you can be in an asthmatic state, when you get this medication, the bronchi open up, it, it gets dilated. It's very fast, but it has so much different and bad adverse and side effects. Then we have the next group we have, we have the long acting beta agonist. The LABA, L-A-B-A, -A, I call it LABA, we talk about the long acting beta agonist. We had the Saba, the short acting beta agonist. We're talking about an example was the abuterol, which I talk about. Now, these LABA, these are drugs that are used for as asthmatic attack prevention. So, when a client is having asthmatic attack frequently, we use these drugs to prevent these attacks for the client. Example is the salmeterol. Salmeterol, it is an example of the long acting beta agonist. Again, there are so many different examples on our message, on our pharmacology when it comes to respiratory uh, uh, medication, on our pharmacology. In our order, we have a lot in there. Now, in the end class, we must understand the difference between albuterol and salmeterol. We must understand the difference between them because their names sound the same, but they have different action. Despite they are both administered in asthma condition, but they have different action. The albuterols, the albuterol, it is a short-acting medication, meaning it arrests acute situation. The salmeterol, it is a long-acting medication They can be given for preventive measures. They can prevent asthmatic or uh, exercise-induced asthma. So, no difference between this medication and this. Note that the angle will give me case scenarios. A client was an athlete who is asthmatic, is going to to run one 200, 200 meter uh, track. What drug will this client take to prevent asthma exacerbation? A, you have abuterol. B, you have metaz uh, some of those metazantine. C, you have salmeterol. When the client is going for, the client does not have an attack at the scene. 
and the client want to prevent the attack, the client can take some, some, some of those law acting like Samitiro. If the client has an acute attack, a broad attack, the client was playing with, with, with their friend, or you had a kid playing with his friends, all of a sudden, um, somebody spray or there was a pollen grains, and the client inhaled the pollens, and the client started to have reaction to the pollens. The client started to have histamines coming in, mass cells started to come in, the client started to have every problem. What can we do with the client? The client will take a short acting, it's a rapid acting uh, medication, which will be the abidural. So we have to understand it like that. Now, when the client takes abidural or samitural, or the client takes theophylline, the client takes apotropium, when the client takes this medication, what do we look out for? These drugs have side effects. They have something that they have other effect that comes with it. They, they, are, they are common, and they have the uncommon effect of these medications. So when the client take when the client takes um, abidural, for abidural you want to read this in your book like how I'm going to put it here. When the client take abidural, you want to watch out for tremors. The client might have tremors, and the client might have tachycardia tremors and tachycardia on my here if the client takes um apotropium the nurse wants to wash out for um dry mouth If the client takes theophylline, the nurse wants to wash out for this drug serum again cause toxicity toxicity. Wash out for the drug's serum level. It's gonna cause it might cause to toxic effect if it is more than its normal level. When it becomes toxic, the client will show nausea. The client will show tachycardia. The client will show, um, like the client will have diarrhea. Those are the toxic symptoms for theophylline. Nausea, tachycardia, diarrhea. The client will have those sort of symptoms coming up when the client has theophylline toxicity. So, like we said, when we're doing those drugs that can cause dry mouth, like the side effect of those SSRIs, we say when a client have a dry mouth, what do we do? You chew gum without sugar, sugarless gum, or the client can suck candies, or the client can take ice chip. Those are things that we don't forget about the English. So just remember them, just just remember them like, like that. Then the then uh we take for asthma also, so we can take um, the anti-inflammatory agents for asthma. So these were the bronchodilators. Because we said in asthmatic condition, the client can have inflammation, the client will have airway congestion, and the client can have inflammation. So the first drugs we talk about, the metazantines. Those medications we talk about, they are all on our bronchodilators. 
Now, for the anti-inflammatory agents, the anti-inflammatory agents, inflammatory agents, we have one, we have the corticosteroids. The corticosteroids. That's one. We have the leukotriene antagonist. The leukotriene antagonist. Under here. The third one is we have the mast cell stabilizer. Mast cell stabilizer. Mast cell stabilizer. And then we have the monoclonal antibodies. The monoclonal antibodies. We talk about these medications when we did pharmacology on our asthma, on our respiratory system. We talk about them. All these drugs got different examples. So many different examples. For the corticosteroids, you can have like uh, the fruticasone, dexamethasone, pregnisolone, all those drugs fall under the corticosteroids. For the leukotriene antagonist, you have the multilusca. You have the multilusca. These drugs have different names. Look at those names. You have the multilusca. Um, you have the mast cells in mast cells, which, which example is the chromoline. You have uh, different names or different examples for this medication. So in asthma, we talk about the bronchodilators. Talk about the anti-inflammatory agents. These are things that we combine when the client sometimes we combine when the client has when the client uh, have other problems that will need more medication combination. Any question on this medication? Any question?